Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, February 19th, 2014. All right, it's going to be a slow start to this week, and I I understand I was uh, out of pocket for uh, Monday and Tuesday. I sit on the board of Higher Things, and we had our annual board of directors meeting, and uh, this time it was up in Chicago, and seem to have come home with a, a little bit of a sinus infection of sorts. So I'm going to definitely fulfill my promise to uh, get our light episode in this week. And uh, we're gonna, today we're going to be doing, uh, actually not doing, but listening to Pastor Ernie Lassman uh, explain the Lutheran understanding of what the scriptures teach regarding the Lord's Supper. Now I have to put it that way uh, because uh, what you're going to hear today is uh, obviously the continuation of the series that uh, we begun a while back. And like I said, last week, this week, and last week would be the most controversial episodes of uh, of those lectures uh, dealing with uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Last week was baptism. Today we're going to be listening to uh, Pastor Lastman explain how the Lutherans understand what scriptures teach regarding the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. It's not the Mass, or and it's, and it's different than uh, Roman Catholic transubstantiation. Calling it consubstantiation is not exactly correct. That's a misnomer, and it's definitely different than um, than uh, the evangelical reform view that it's pure symbol. So, uh, the, again, I understand that it's controversial, and my hope today was to do a normal episode and play this episode tomorrow, but my health being what it is, it, it's difficult to think through a, a you know a, a sinus infection of sorts, and so... I'm, you know, I, I'm better than I was yesterday when I got home, and today is not quite up to snuff. So, I fi- figure you don't want to do discernment while on sinus meds. So, uh, we're going to be doing uh, this today. So, without any further ado, you know, part two of the two controversial uh, episodes uh, that we, you know, I promised. Here is Pastor Ernie Lassman, and uh, week number eleven in the series Christianity 101 on the Lord's Supper. Here we go. Tonight, we're going to talk about the third means of grace. I won't draw it on the uh, whiteboard right now. You're probably very used to it. But you can see, I know you can see it already. See the house over here? I don't have to draw it, do it. And the well water over here? Yeah, and you, you can see the pipes and everything. Yeah. And then, you, you can just visualize it, can't you? Yeah, you can see that house. And then you can see the cross here, and then here we are in 2006, and how, does, how do we get what Jesus did for us? And I, There's three things. They're called the means of grace. They're God's pipes. The three means of grace are the Word, 
baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we're going to talk about the third means of grace then tonight, the Lord's Supper. If you want to find Jesus and his blessings, you don't go to Safeway. You don't go to Mount Rainier. You go to the means of grace, his word, baptism, and his supper. That's where we find Jesus and his blessings. Okay? So, uh, let's turn on page 47, lesson number 11, the Lord's Supper. I always introduce this lesson in the same way. I always have mixed feelings teaching uh, this uh, lesson. Because on the one hand, I have much joy. And hopefully that will come across to you. Joy about teaching about this wonderful supper that Jesus has given to us with the bread and wine and his body and blood, which we'll talk about for the forgiveness of our sins. But there's also just a little bit of sadness uh, in this lesson, because what should be a source of unity among Christians, the Lord's Supper, has become a source of division among Christians, because unfortunately Christians have different understanding about the essence of the Lord's Supper or what the Lord's Supper is, uh, which is what I want to uh, show you right now, uh, just to set you up for some of our teaching later in the evening. And you can see it in this little uh, chart here. After consecration. Now, I don't know if you understand that language, but it means uh, after the pastor speaks the words of institution over the bread and wine. That is, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, which we'll see later in 1 Corinthians 11. The question is this. Here's what Christians are divided over. When you go to the Lord's Supper, what do you receive with your mouth? Okay. And you get three different answers. It says reformed here. Uh, most people don't know what that means. So reformed, you can write the word if you wish, Protestant. Because what I'm going to tell you, generally speaking, is the general Protestant view. Okay. And by Protestant, I mean all Christians... Other than, other than Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Eastern Orthodox, and some Anglican or Episcopalian. They're always hard to talk about because they're all over the place, which I'll come back to maybe later. So, Protestants are Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Pentecostals and United Church of Christ and community churches and Evangelicals and so forth and so on. And they believe that you receive two things with your mouth. And you can see that there is bread and wine, although many of them, not all of them, many of them will use uh, grape juice. They do not believe that the body and blood of Jesus is with the bread and wine in any sense whatsoever. They believe that the bread and wine, and you can see at the bottom of the page there, represent or symbolize the body and blood. And I'm going to, I, this is just a preview because I'll, I'll show you the Bible passages. We'll look at the Bible passages, but in order to better understand the Bible passages, you need to know this introductory material. So, the bread and wine represent or symbolizes the body and blood of Christ. So, you receive in a Protestant Lord's Supper two things with your mouth bread and wine or grape juice. Let's go to the Roman Catholic view. Roman Catholic view, and let me tell you right now, Lutherans are actually closer to Roman Catholics on this than Protestants. And that surprises a lot of people, which I'll explain as we go along. Roman Catholics also say you receive two things with your mouth. What do you receive with your mouth according to the Roman Catholic Church? The body and blood of Christ. Okay, well, what happened to the bread and wine? Well, this is the teaching 
of transubstantiation. Let me put it on the board, and then I'll get this out of the way. And when we get to it, I'll just make reference to it again. Transubstantiation. Okay. Um, Lutherans and Roman Catholics, and the Greek Orthodox for that matter, are all agreed that the body and blood of Jesus is really with the, uh, in, the, in the Lord's Supper. The main difference on this point between Lutherans and Roman Catholics, Lutherans don't try to explain this, which, which I'll get back to. The Roman Catholic Church has tried to explain this mystery of how the body and blood of Jesus are there. And in the process of explaining how the body and blood of Jesus are there, they explain away the bread and wine. And that's why you see in the Roman Catholic, the key word is what? Changed into. So the Roman Catholic Church teaches when the priest says the words of institution, he has the power via his ordination to change the bread into the body of Christ so there is no more bread. Okay? And he has the power to change the wine into the blood of Christ so there is no more wine. Okay? Now, then the obvious question is, well, it sure looks like bread and wine to me. <laughs> okay, so how, so how do they explain that? with the teaching of transubstantiation. And what happened is, and this all came about with the, with the uh, great theologian uh, Thomas Aquinas, came about in the 13th century, that'd be the 1200s, uh, coined this phrase as well as others. And he used, unfortunately, Greek philosophy to try to explain this mystery. Lutherans don't try to explain it. It's a mystery. But he did, and he used Greek philosophy of Aristotle. And he used two key words from Aristotle that involves the Roman Catholic teaching of transubstantiation. He used the word substance. And the word accident. Now, substance, you know what that is. Substance is the essence of something, what it really what is, okay? An accident in, 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 in Aristotle, in Greek philosophy, is not two cars running into each other. In Greek philosophy, an accident is the appearance of something. Okay? And even we have this kind of concept in our English uh, language. For example, you can't always judge a book by its cover. Okay? Well, the cover of the book would be its accident, but what's in the book may be really something you weren't expecting. So it may, the, the outside of the book may look kind of boring, okay? but then you start reading it, and wow, you're getting into it, right? On the other hand, the outside of a book, the, its appearance may look really exciting. You get into it by you know, page 10, you, you know, this is horrible. So that's a little bit of a simplistic illustration. So uh, this is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. When the priest says the words of institution, he changes the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. So it has the appearance of bread and wine, but in its essence or substance, it's the body and blood of Christ. So it looks like bread and wine, but it's not bread and wine. Okay. Well, Lutherans were never very impressed with that. Uh, however, let me tell you, on the idea of the body and blood of Christ, though, we Lutherans are closer to Rome than we are to the Protestants. Because at least Rome has the body and blood. Okay? Protestants don't. Okay. So that's what we're going to talk about. Now you see, so let me reword this, and we're going to get into point one in just a minute. Protestants believe you receive two things with your mouth. 
bread and wine and only bread and wine that symbolize or represent the body and blood of Jesus that aren't there at all. Roman Catholics believe you receive two things with your mouth. The body and blood of Jesus. Lutherans believe you receive four things with your mouth. We agree with the Protestants. You receive bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. But we disagree with the Protestants and agree with Rome and say, with that bread and wine, now here's the phrase, in a way we do not comprehend, we don't try to explain it like Rome has, with the bread and wine, we receive the actual body and blood of Jesus that was on the cross with our mouth. Okay? So, with that introduction, let's work our way through all of our texts and we'll get down to the actual texts themselves. But you need to have that little bit of a background. So, number one, as we study the mystery of the Lord's Supper, and once you understand this idea about the body and blood of Jesus, you understand it is a mystery. We study the mystery of the Lord's Supper. We need to bear in mind who it was that gave us the sacrament. And so, who instituted the Lord's Supper? Well, this should be rather uh, obvious. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And we could read the whole thing maybe later, but uh, that's the night of his betrayal, which I'll refer to back later. So, Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper. It's not a church tradition. It's not a church custom. But it came, just like baptism, comes directly from Jesus Christ. Now, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the truth. Now, why would we have that Bible passage here? Well, because, let's face it, you know, uh, I know that the teaching, that the bread and wine are his body and blood, I know that's an intellectually difficult teaching. Have we ever discovered that before, by the way, about Christianity? Haven't we encountered some other things that are intellectually difficult to comprehend? Okay. So the important thing is, the reason we have, he says the truth, Jesus is not going to lie to us. Right? And it's Jesus, not Rome, not the Lutheran church, it's Jesus who says with this bread, take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. Okay? So Jesus says this. So whether we understand it or not, you've heard me say that before, he's not going to lie to us. Okay? So, The next one, Ephesians 3.20, the he refers to Jesus in context. He's able to do so much more than we can ever ask or think of. Now, that, that Bible passage, okay, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. That Ephesians passage answers the question, can Jesus do that? And the answer is what? Yeah, if he says that, he certainly can do that. Okay, and I've got my old friend here. How can you, and you're all going to know exactly what, how can Jesus make his body and blood be with the bread and wine? And you all understand, don't you? Because Jesus, remember, after his resurrection, ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and now as a man, he fully and always uses his power as God. And we looked up, where is Jesus now? Jesus is everywhere, not just according to his divine nature, but even, I mean, his human, uh, divine nature, but according to his human nature, right? Otherwise, we cut Jesus in two. So if Jesus already fills the whole wide universe, that's in Ephesians, also according to his human nature, then in view of who he is and where he already is anyway, if he says he's with the bread and wine with his body and blood, it's like, okay. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. 
Because, see, if you don't understand about the human nature, that's why I said that earlier, if you think the human nature is only up in heaven someplace up there and not everywhere with his divine nature, then you won't understand how his body and blood can be with the bread and wine. But if his human nature fills the whole universe because you can't separate his human nature from his divine nature, then it's a little bit more not completely, of course, a little bit more understandable than when he says, yeah, and in the Lord's Supper, I'm especially present with my body and blood. Yes, please. Does that have any relevance where Paul talks about in Ephesians that the church and Jesus become one flesh? Uh, No, the church and Jesus don't become one flesh. Uh, Husbands and wives become one flesh. And then in Ephesians 5... uh, he simply gives an illustration, but the church and Jesus aren't one flesh. That would be a misstatement. The Bible has little parentheses, but I'm talking about the church here. Yeah, but not the one flesh part. Yeah, yeah. He's not talking about that. Yeah, yeah, no, he's talking about this is a great mystery. Yeah, this is a great mystery. Yeah, but no, the, because uh, um, uh, the, the church and Jesus are, are distinct. The only way that... Uh, uh, he's using an illustration there's the idea that in, in the relationship of a Christian husband and Christian wife, in that relationship, the husband symbolizes Jesus because of headship. Right. Okay? And the wife symbolizes the church because as the church submits to Christ, the Christian wife submits to her Christian husband, understood properly. Yeah. But not one flesh. So re-look, uh, check that out again. Yeah. Okay. Now, we're going to do a lot more. This is just preliminary. So, from this we learn our Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. It's not a church custom, not a church tradition. B, He's the ever-truthful and almighty God. Therefore, we can lie on everything He says and promises. Now, before we move on, there are several names in the Bible for the Lord's Supper. So, let's look at this very quickly here. It says, other names for the sacrament are Holy Communion. And I'm going to give you Bible references, so you might want to have your pen or pencil ready. Above the word communion, you can write this reference. 1 Corinthians, C-O-R, 10, 16, and 17. Now, you won't find the word holy, but depending upon your translation, you should find the word either communion or participation or fellowship. It's the same Greek word, but the English translations translate the word differently. So, look for communion, uh, fellowship, participation, something like that. The sacrament of the altar, that phrase is not in the Bible. That's okay, though. But the sacrament of the altar, of course, is distinguished from the sacrament of baptism. The Lord's table, yes, that's in the Bible. And you'll find it in 1 Corinthians 10, 21. The breaking of bread, yes, that's in the Bible, too. Reference to the Lord's Supper, Acts 2. 42, the Eucharist, believe it or not, when you know how to find it, that is in the Bible, a reference to the Lord's Supper, and let me give you the reference and then I'll explain it to you. 1 Corinthians 11, 24, now you will not find the word Eucharist, but you will find the word, depending upon the translation, something like giving of thanks, Because in the Greek, the Greek word for giving of thanks is pronounced Eucharisto. 
Well, you can hear the word Eucharist, can't you? So Eucharist means giving of thanks. And also, let's see, uh, one, uh, one obvious one, uh, that they don't have it here, but we don't want to uh, overlook it, uh, the Lord's Supper. You can write that down, which is, of course, the title of our lesson, the Lord's Supper. And that is in the Bible, too. The Lord's Supper, that may be found in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. So, uh, all those names are okay references. You might hear some of those references said differently in different denominations. They're all okay. Usually a church has to pick, you know, two or three. But you can find probably all those at uh, one time or another uh, in the Lutheran church, either in a sermon or, uh, or um, a Bible study or a hymn or the liturgy or something like that. Please. Uh, well, the Bible says if you, uh, if you take uh, bread and wine unworthily, I'm going to talk about it. Should you hold off on that? I'm going to talk about that. I promise you. And I'll talk, do the best I can and then uh, bring that point back up. I promise you we will. Okay, so just anything just about what we've talked about. Because as usual, you know how I go step by step by step as I kind of build my case during the night. Now, let's go to number two. It was Passover time. Would you highlight the word Passover or Passover time? Because I don't know what you know or don't know, so I need to say a few things either for review or to tell you something maybe you don't know. Uh, The night that Jesus institutes what we call the Lord's Supper, if you don't know this, was the night of his betrayal. This takes place right before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where eventually Judas shows up and betrays him with a kiss and then begins the whole process of being taken for his trial and finally his, his, his crucifixion. So the Lord's Supper is right before they go off to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now the reason it's significant what's happening, they are eating the Passover meal of the Jews. And what we're going to see is Jesus is going to transform the Jewish Passover into his meal. Just like the Old Testament ritual of circumcision was transferred over to baptism. So they're eating the Passover. And what they have there, among other things, is uh, unleavened bread. Bitter herbs to remind them of their bitter experience in uh, slavery in uh, Egypt. And wine. Now, let me tell you the story very quickly. We can't spend a lot of time. But how did the Passover meal come about? Well, it's finally, you remember, and you just saw it the other night, Charlton Heston's going to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Remember? And he comes to tell the Pharaoh to let the people go. And, of course, the Pharaoh won't let him go, will he? And so then he sends all the different plagues, right? And the Pharaoh just keeps saying, no, 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 no. And finally, God tells Moses, I'm going to send the final plague. And believe me, he'll let the people go. Because the last plague was God himself was going to pass through the land of Egypt. And he was going to strike down dead all the firstborn of Egypt of of animals and people. Now, the reason this is significant, I have to say this real quick because I, I can't spend a lot of time on this. What's going on behind the scenes, there's more going on in that story that meets the eye. Because in essence, what you have going on in the story of the Exodus is the battle of gods. The God of Egypt and the God of the slaves. 
And who do you think is more important, the God of Egypt or the God of slaves? Okay. And the God of Egypt was, was personified in the Pharaoh. Okay. And that's going to be important in just a minute. So anyway, he says he's going to come through and strike down all the dead. I mean, strike down all the firstborn. But he was going to spare his people. How was he going to spare his people? They were to sacrifice a lamb. Now, that should be your very first clue how this is going to relate to Jesus. Right? Because remember when Jesus shows up to be baptized by John the baptizer? John says, behold the, the lamb. Takes away the sin of the world. They were to take a lamb. They were to sacrifice the lamb. Okay, Take the blood of the lamb. The blood of lamb. The blood of Jesus. Okay. They would take the blood of the lamb and to smear the blood over the doorposts and over the windowsills. Okay. And when God came through the land and he came to the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorposts and the windowsills, he would pass over that house and spare that house. Okay. And um, so that's what they do. And then they were to be inside the house when this was all happening. They were to roast the lamb and eat it. They were to eat the lamb, the Passover meal, standing up because they were going to be leaving real soon. Okay? They were to eat unleavened bread, put no yeast in the bread because you're going to be coming out of here so fast there won't be enough time for the bread to rise. So we know it was unleavened bread okay? and to have uh, bitter herbs to remind them of their bitter experience of slavery in the land of Egypt. And then also they had wine there, and they're standing up, and then God comes through the land and, and, and all that. Now, they were supposed to celebrate the Passover then all the time to remind them of God's deliverance of the people. That's the meal Jesus is eating with the 12 apostles. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to take the unleavened bread, eventually in this meal, and say, this is my body. And he's going to take the wine and he's going to say, take, drink, this is the blood of the New Testament for the forgiveness of sins. So, we're going to see. so that's the Passover meal that was celebrated, well, still celebrated by Jews, isn't it? The sad thing is, is Jesus fulfilled that and the Jewish people are still having the Passover. Okay, well, we, that's all we can do. We have to move on. Number two then, it was Passover time. Having eaten of the lamb, whose death foreshadowed his own on the morrow for the sins of the world. What does that mean? It means the very night that the lambs were being sacrificed in the temple in Jerusalem for the Passover, Jesus was going to be sacrificed on the cross for the sins of the world and fulfill the symbolism of all those lambs being sacrificed in the temple. So it all came together. What did Jesus take and give to his disciples? Okay, this is pretty straightforward. Luke twenty-two nineteen. he took bread. We know it was unleavened bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Matthew 26, he took a cup. We know there was wine in it. When he had given it, he gave it to them. So this is a very simple point. We'll do this very quick. From this we learn, Jesus gave his, his disciples bread, unleavened, and wine, the fruit of the vine, Matthew 26. Number three then, what did Jesus say? Luke twenty-two nineteen. he gave the bread to them saying, this is my body. Matthew 26, he gave the cup to them saying, this is my blood. With the bread then, Jesus gives us his body. With the wine, he gives us his blood. Now, now we're going to address the point of, was this representation or not? That's the point I'm going to address. I'll be bringing up your point a little bit later on. Let's start with the very obvious and simple. What does Jesus say? Take, eat, this is my body. 
Take, drink, this is my blood. Now, let's start with the simple part. That's not hard, is it? The words are easy to understand, are they not? What's difficult? What's difficult is the concept. (laughs) The words are simple. The words are clear, are they not? This is my body, this is my blood. So the words are simple and clear. The only thing that's difficult is the concept that the words communicate. Okay? So, uh, uh, we need to talk about these words. So let's go to number four then. Here, here, here's the punchline. Number four. Does this mean that Jesus actually gives us his body and blood in the Lord's Supper? And the answer is yes. Now, let's look at these passages again. Luke 22 19 and 20. Jesus said this, and that this refers to what? The bread. This is my body, which is given for you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Point one. If somebody is going to understand this passage, other than the simple, clear words, they have to prove their interpretation. And there have been some people who have tried to prove their interpretation and has not convinced the rest of us. For example, there's only two ways you can understand these words. Just as they read, or as a figure of speech. Okay. And we say there is no figure of speech. Some have tried to find it. Now, uh, for example, you find it in the word is. Some people want to say, and some have been trained so much in their churches, they don't even see the word is anymore. They see and hear the word is, and they automatically think, what do you think? Represents or symbolizes Of course, Jesus doesn't say that, does he? Because this is my body. He doesn't say, he could have, remember when he told parables? Yeah? When he told parables, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, he could have said that, couldn't he? Take, eat, this is like my body. He doesn't say that. Doesn't speak like a parable. This is my body. Yes? I don't want to disagree, but just one thing that came to mind was... um, you're at the supper, you're Jesus, yeah. Yeah. you're giving the, the body and blood, sure. and you're saying this is, because at the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. it was because it was from Jesus' hand. Mm-hmm. But today, when a human being who has flaws oh, and sins okay. Okay. is doing this, is that the same? It is. Let me tell you why. Uh, and this is a good point. Where you say, I was going to say this later, but I can get this in real quickly here. Uh, even though we agree with Roman Catholics on the real presence, there are nuanced differences, as I said, like transubstantiation. Another nuanced difference is for the body and blood to be there in the Roman Catholic way of looking at it, it the priest does it via his ordination. So only the priest. That's not the teaching of the Lutheran Church. When, when we have the sacrament here, the Lord's Supper, we believe the body and blood of Jesus is distributed in the Supper, but not because of any power I have. Well, where does the power come from? Anybody going to guess? If it's not from me. It's from God. In other words, Jesus promises. Basically, I'm going to paraphrase. Jesus basically says, whenever you do this, I'll make sure my body and blood are there. So he makes his body and blood be present there. So the same divine power, right? Whether he's sitting there with his disciples or now he's at the right hand of God, he will make sure that his body and blood will be there. So it's not my doing. If you're giving the body and blood, mm-hmm. it has to be in a time of worship that 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 Jesus is going to say, I'm granting this to be set with this okay. is. So it's not like, you know, you and I could sit at a home and 
That is true. So there has to be certain elements to make this happen. That's true. And it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with the priest. It just is. But there still has to be certain things that... No, there just has... No, there just has to be Jesus' words. Uh, in other words, he had to institute this sometime. And he instituted it with his, with his 12 disciples. And then from there on, it would be held in what we would call a, uh, a congregation. That's where we're going to read it in just a minute. It's, we hear about this being done in Corinth, for example, okay, in a congregation. Uh, that's why it's supposed to be in a congregation. But he had, to, he had to start it somewhere. And instead of doing it with 500 people or 120 people, he did it intimately with the 12 because this is the night of his betrayal. And these are the 12 that are with him. So what I'm trying to say in a long-winded fashion, that was his congregation on, the, uh, on that night. Uh, am I, am I yeah. still missing it? Or I, no. I still feel like I'm missing I something. So. No, I just, I guess I'm, I'm trying to just see the difference between, like I said before, like if you were just at home having, you know, bread and wine and, and you know, I was saying to my husband, this yeah. is the, you know, oh, oh. versus what elements need to be in place for Okay, yeah, you're, you're not. Just to finally say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're not authorized to do that. For example, right. let me give you an example. Are let, you? Yes, I am. Yeah. I, I'm authorized. No, 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 no. That's okay. I know you're, yeah. No, I am. For example, remember on baptism, we said there is such a thing as a lay person doing an emergency baptism. There is no such thing as a lay person doing an emergency communion. There is no emergency communion. So lay people can baptize in an emergency, but they don't do the Lord's Supper. There's no such thing as an emergency Lord's Supper. Okay. So yes, it, so via my call, okay. I am authorized. Okay. For example, for example, let me give you an example. I'm the authorized preacher here. I'm the authorized baptizer here. I'm the authorized presider at the sacrament. Is that, is that kind of what you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, come, that also comes from Jesus, which we'll talk about in Lesson 12. We'll talk about the public office of the ministry. That also comes from Jesus. My, my position of pastor, whatever you call it, pastor, priest, whatever, comes from Jesus from the, the apostolic office. So I've been authorized to do these things on his behalf. Absolution, Sunday morning, I forgive people. You know, I, I forgive your sins in the name of the Father. I've been authorized to do that. Yeah, that helps a little bit. Yeah, so it's authorization. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, entry experience where this intern pastor uh, was from a very well country. Okay. And a lot of the people couldn't come to the congregation. Mm-hmm. So the intern was assigned to go out and do with those folks. Well, yeah, I sort of do that. We have, most churches have what we call shut ins, elderly people, sick people can't get to church. Okay. And I have them on a list. And the vicar and I go to visit. Now, the vicar is not authorized, because he's not a fully ordained pastor yet, he's not authorized to give the Lord's Supper, but he can go visit and give devotions. But then I come and see them. I just did it today. I visited somebody over at Arden Nursing Home, and I took them the sacrament of the altar, because yeah, they can't get to church. Yeah. Yes? I think it's probably me, but I think something's kind of missing. As we walk through this systematically, mm-hmm. we read about the Passover, mm-hmm. We understand about the sacrifice of the lambs in the mm-hmm. temple. And we understand that Christ is the lamb. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it from that perspective, it's actually quite reasonable yeah. that well, the lamb would hold his blood. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, this is the thing with Jesus, and I'm not sure if this is part of your point or part of your point, but, but Jesus is, is unique. When you look at the Bible, Jesus is both the priest and the victim, using Old Testament language. He's both the priest that offers the sacrifice, and he's also the sacrifice. 
So the Bible speaks sort of inclusively about him. The point is you can't find a figure of speech in the word is. For example, if I said, and this is true of all language, all language. If I say, this is a Bible, and somebody says, oh, you mean this represents a Bible? No. This is a Bible. Oh, it symbolizes a Bible. No. You get my point, don't you? This is a Bible. And this is true in all language because there's a world of difference, right, between symbolism and reality. Now, if somebody, and I don't know, I'll kind of springboard off your point, George. If you're looking for representation or symbolism, now watch how I do this. The representation and symbolism is to be found in the lambs that were being offered in the temple. Did you follow that? Because all those lambs being sacrificed in the temple, they truly were what? Symbols or representation of the real thing that was yet to come. And the real thing shows up and Jesus says, this is the Lamb of God. He didn't say this symbolizes, this is the Lamb of God that all these other ones symbolize and represent. But in the Lord's Supper, there's no symbolism. This is the body and blood of Jesus. Now, some people have then tried, they've given up on trying to find a figure of speech in the word is, and so they focus on the word body or blood. This is a symbol of my body. This is a symbol of my blood. The problem with that, he tells us what it is. He says, this is my body, what? Which is given for you. Well, was a symbol of his body given for us? No, his body was given for us. Or likewise, when he says, this is my blood, which is shed for you. Symbolic blood wasn't shed for us. His blood was shed for us. Now, uh, so what we say is, there's no way you can get a figure of speech out of this. And fortunately, thank you, Lord, we have two passages that reinforce what I'm telling you. Now, let me back up. I'm not saying that you're ever going to really fully understand the concept of his body and blood with the bread and wine, because I don't understand it either. How many times have I told you that? You don't have to understand it. As a matter of fact, if you try to understand it, you'll do what Rome did, you'll try, and you'll end up explaining away the bread and wine. This is a mystery. Nobody understands this. We just take Jesus at his word. He tells the truth, and he can do what he Says. Now let's look at the two Bible passages that reinforce that we have the proper understanding when we believe that with the bread and wine we actually receive with our mouth his body and his blood in a way that's beyond our comprehension. One of them is in your green booklet there. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. This is Paul. The cup of blessing. That would be the wine. That would be the wine. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not a very sharing, now depending on your translation, that could be the word communion or participation of the blood of Christ? Now that's, what answer is he expecting? That's called a rhetorical question. The cup of blessing, is it not a very sharing in the blood of Christ? What answer is he expecting? Yes! (laughs) It is! When we break the bread, do we not actually share in the body of Christ? Yes! We do. So he's telling you right there, when you take the bread and wine, you're actually sharing or participating in the body and blood of Christ, just like he says, this is my body and this is my blood. Now there's another one that's not in your green booklet. Write this down, we'll look it up. And it's kind of one that uh, 
Clarence alluded to, and Clarence, I, I'll talk a little bit about it, but I I'll, uh, won't talk about everything that you ask until later in the evening, so just bear with me. It's 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, let's read 22 to 29. Uh, actually, 23, I'm sorry, but the new paragraph. See the new paragraph there? For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you in the adult information class. That's implied. <laughs> The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, and this is right from the Gospels, took bread. And when he had given thanks, there's Eucharisto, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 25. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, or the New Testament, in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27 and following is really what I want you to see now. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and I'll talk about that later in the evening, will be guilty of sinning against bread and wine. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Will be guilty of sinning against what? The body and blood of Christ, because what's with the bread and wine? The body and the blood. If you don't take the bread and wine properly, you're not, you're not just taking a little bread and wine. You're sinning against the body and blood of Jesus that's with the bread and wine. Verse 28, and we'll talk about this later in the evening. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then it goes on from there that we'll pick up later. So, so that's another passage that says, with the bread and wine, you receive the body and blood of Christ. And it's so significant and important that if you take the Lord's Supper in the wrong way, and later I'll tell you, that's basically in unbelief, you sin against the body and blood of Jesus that's with the bread and wine. Yeah, please, go ahead. Yes, yeah, okay. Let's, let's do the in the remembrance part because some people uh, get that all wrong. Let, let's say about the remembrance, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But however you understand remembrance, and I'm not telling you specifically, I mean the you, general you, you still can't take away the words, this is my body, this is my blood. Nobody has the right to take away those words, this is my body, this is my blood, regardless of how one understands the remembrance. Okay, that's point one. Point two, in a biblical context, remembrance doesn't mean the American... Yeah, exactly. It doesn't mean just up here. To remember Jesus means to do what he's telling you to do with the bread and wine. You see what I'm getting at here? It's just like the Passover. Because if you know anything about the Passover, the children of Israel, when they went through the Passover story at the Passover meal, they just weren't going here. It's as if they were actually what? They were there. It's participatory. So you're right. So remembrance isn't just not an American concept. Uh, gosh, you remember old Grandma Smith? Yeah, she was a real good grandma, wasn't she? That's not what it meant at all. And even if somebody did understand it that way, which would be wrong, you still can't take away the words, this is my body, this is my blood. Because it's kind of in spirit. Say again? In spirit. I don't know what you mean by in the spirit. Well, you don't think... You don't have the American concept about it at all. Yeah. Really, you can't compare it. No, you can't. You can't. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, good question. Okay, um, so 
let's kind of work this through then. So we firmly believe that we receive the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament with the, with the elements of bread and wine. Okay. Why? Because Jesus says, this is my body, the same body which is given for you unto death. This is my blood, the same blood which is shed for you on the cross. And then B, because the Bible tells us that when we eat and drink the bread and wine, we share in the very body and blood of Christ. The real presence. Would you highlight or circle those two words, please? Because that is found throughout the history of the church and in talking about theology. When you hear something about the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus, that means the person who's saying that, or presumably saying that, uh, believes that the body and blood of Jesus are with the bread and wine in a way we don't understand. In other words, the real presence is the opposite of symbolism and representation. We believe in the real presence All right, we are going to pause the lecture right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's lecture on the Lord's Supper with Pastor Ernie Lastman. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rexquando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando... We use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church.
Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, a good biblical understanding of communion has its roots in good Christology and the Incarnation and what it really means. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's uh, lecture by Pastor. Pastor Ernie Lassman on the Lord's Supper. Here we go. Now, on this point, I'd like to say, uh, 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 well, let's finish off the parentheses, then I'll add some more. The real presence of Christ's body and blood in the Supper is a miracle. We can't understand it. We can't explain it. Rome should have never tried. Transubstantiation's wrong. But because it's a fact clearly revealed in the Word of God, we believe it with all of our heart. Now, a couple of things I want to say, and then I'll pause for your comments and input. This idea of the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus does not depend on your faith. Your faith or lack of faith does not impact the body and blood of Jesus. Because remember, what makes the body and blood of Jesus be there? Jesus does. This is why it's going to be serious when we get to that about people need to know what's going on here. So they don't take the Lord's Supper in the wrong Because the body and blood of Jesus are there whether you know it's there or whether you believe it's there. Your faith does not create the presence. Now, later on, well, where does faith come in? Faith receives the benefit of the body and blood, which is going to be what? Forgiveness. So that's true. You have to have faith to receive the benefit of the body and blood. Forgiveness, which we're going to get to in just a minute. But the body and blood are there whether you believe it or not because Jesus makes it there. It's very important. Now, the last thing I'll say, I think, uh, two things. This teaching of the real presence, I've just told you, was not made up by Martin Luther, was not made up by the Pope. This teaching of the real presence goes all the way back to the early church fathers. 
we can read the early church fathers, and by what by what early church fathers? I mean, like 120, 150 A.D. And they talk about the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus. The idea of symbolism didn't really start being talked about until about the year 1000 or 1100. And it was a very small minority position. And then it took off in the Reformation with all the Protestants. Okay? Because they were rejecting everything that was, that was Roman Catholic. See? And they rejected the real presence too, unfortunately. So the real presence goes all the way back to the early church. It's not a new teaching. And point number two, most churches today officially teach the real presence when you consider the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Lutheran Church, and some Anglicans, because Anglicans, as I said, are all over the place. You take those, those denominations together, the majority of Lutherans, at least the, I mean, the majority of Christians, uh, are taught about the real presence if they're being taught properly. Now, the reason I'm saying that, that doesn't prove it, but I want you to understand that this teaching I just told you is not only in the Bible, but it's been around for a long, long time, and most Christians believe this. So you don't think like, well, yeah, that's kind of weird. Who would believe that? So I'm trying to put it in context for you. Okay, okay anything then about, let's kind of restrict it right now, just to the idea of the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus. Please. I have a couple questions. The first one is, if you're in like a church that doesn't believe that it's, yeah. it believes it's symbolic, yeah. is it really still? Good question. Absolutely good question. And theologians discuss that. And I agree with the theologians, and the majority came down to this conclusion, which I agree with, is no, they don't. Well, why not? Because they have exactly what they say they have. In other words, so if they preach and teach to their people that this is representation, then words aren't magical. Words, words are meaningful only with the meaning that you give them. So if they teach and preach their people that this symbolism or representation, then I would agree with all the theologians who have said over the centuries then that, that they have exactly what they say and what they want. They've got bread and wine. So that, that's, that's the position I would have, too. Yeah. Yes, please go ahead. My other question was um, where it talks about like we are the body of Christ. Yes. Yeah. And it doesn't say we're like the body of Christ. Yeah. How do you explain that? Word? Well, in a sense, yeah, in a sense we are. Because who lives in us? Yeah. Well, Jesus lives in us too, doesn't he? So in a, in a way, I, but I understand your point. Obviously, we're not Jesus, okay? Um, but in a way, also, it's kind of like, like with the bread, too. The bread isn't the body in a sense, is it? But somehow the bread communicates what? The body. And that's the way the Christian church is and individual Christians. Jesus Christ lives within us. And that's why, for example, um, let me give you an illustration. Two real quick ones about this intimate union between Christians and Jesus. When Paul was persecuting the church, you might remember this, okay? And Jesus meets him on the Damascus Road, where he's on the way to persecute more Christians. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you, what? Persecuting me, Jesus. Well, what do you mean? Because he was persecuting what? Christians. And who lived in Christians? Jesus. Okay. And then the, uh, oh, shoot, I had another one. I just went brain dead. I, 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 it just escaped me. Yeah, it'll come back to me. Uh, oh, yes, I got it. Um, Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats on the judgment day. And he talks about doing good works and what you did or didn't do. And he says, if you did it to one of these least of my, these little ones, you did it to me. He's talking about what you did to Christians. If you did this for Christians, 
You did it for me. If you didn't do this for Christians, you didn't do it for me. So you see those two illustrations, the intimate connection even between the church or Christians and Jesus. I just asked the question yeah. pretty thoroughly. Yeah. What do you say to those who said it's cannibalism? Oh, uh, Christians have all, always been accused of cannibalism. It started with the Roman Empire because they, of course, they didn't know what Christians were, did they? It was all hearsay and the Christian church was new. And the early Christians were accused of cannibalism. And here's my point, George. That would tell you right out of the chute that these Christians were using pretty graphic language about what they were doing, right? They were what? Eating the body of this Jesus. And the Romans took it as? cannibalism. And then there's been other series in history, including time of the Reformation, uh, uh, a Protestant by the name of Ulrich Zwingli accused the Romans and the Lutherans of cannibalism. And of course, that's not what we mean. Um, this is a mystery. And we'll say this in just a moment. We eat the bread and the wine just like we eat and drink any bread and wine. And we eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus, but what? In a way that's different. We don't comprehend it. But it doesn't mean we're eating the body of Jesus like a piece of beefsteak. Yeah. And we've always, the, the, the church has always had to uh, speak to people who were that, um, that coarse, literal, and like cannibalism. Yeah. So it, it is a real eating, as we'll see, but it's, we don't understand it. And it's different from eating the bread and wine. But it's a true eating beyond our comprehension. Yeah. But that's all, often been accused uh, against Christians. Yes. We use the word for this mysterious. Yeah. And now everybody's saying spiritual. She or he is spiritual. But don't they hear the word mysterious in what we do? Yeah, well, that's what it is. It is, it is a mystery. You know, when you understand, when you in, understand all these things properly, the Christian church is filled with mystery and awe and wonder. You know? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see then. Uh, let's go to, I think I said everything I wanted to. Let's go to uh, number five then. You might want to put an R period, C period to the left of five. Because now I've been talking about how we're different from Protestants. That we believe in the real presence instead of symbolism or representation. And even though we have some in common with the Roman Catholic Church, there are some differences here. And so point five and six, we'll talk about how we're different from Rome. Number five, what about the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper? Are these perhaps changed into the body and blood of Christ? Now, that would be transubstantiation, right? And we would say, no, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. as often as you eat this what? Bread and drink this cup, and what's in the cup? Wine. And so what we're saying is, even after the words of consecration in the Lord's Supper, yeah, we believe, like Protestants, we receive bread and wine. Whereas Rome has explained away the bread and wine. So we believe there's bread and wine with the body and blood. So from this we learn the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine. But with the bread and wine, we receive the body and blood of Christ. The bread and wine are received in a natural way. Christ's body and blood in a supernatural way. And the only reason we say it that way is because it's in a manner beyond what? Beyond our comprehension. We just don't understand it. But it's, it's, it's real uh, nonetheless. So, um, again, to remind you, Protestants receive two things with their mouth, bread and wine. Roman Catholics say they receive two things with their mouth, body and blood. And Lutherans say 
uh, four things. And by the way, to the best of my knowledge, I'd have to check this out again. To the best of my knowledge, the Eastern Orthodox Church has the Lutheran understanding as well. To the best of my recollection, I'm open to correction on this, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church does not believe in transubstantiation either. Now, the only reason I say that is, again, not to prove it, but to show you that you know, the Eastern Orthodox Church is a very ancient church, has as much claim to ancient history as Rome does or anybody else. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, they would say you receive four things with your mouth too. Now, number six, again, you can put an RC to the left of that. Uh, this is, again, uh, how we're a little bit different from Rome. Uh, what, for what use? That's the key phrase. What use did Christ give us his body and blood with the bread and wine? Matthew 26, take, eat, drink of it, all of you. From this we learn, Christ gives us his body and blood with the bread and wine for one use and one use only, to eat and to drink. And they say, well, why would you ask that dumb question? Well, because during the Middle Ages, and that's what I'm going to show you right now, during the Middle Ages, from 500 to 1,000, certain corruptions and abuses came into the church that had to be cleaned up during the time of the Reformation. And so what they did, they started using and teaching the Lord's Supper in ways that were contradictory to how Jesus said to do it. And that's what we're going to look at right now. So, for example, from this we learn, Christ gives us his body and blood with the bread and wine for one use, to eat and to drink. Christ says, eat and drink. And then would you put a number one with a circle around it where it says, not only, because I'm going to give you three points. So, number one, not only eat, there must be no withholding of the cup, the wine, from the laity. Christ says, eat and drink. Now, I don't know if you know the history of this, or if anybody has a Roman Catholic background here. But by the time of Martin Luther, in the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church had taken the blood of Christ away from the people. Okay? The people only received the body of Christ. And that was, tr- that was the official teaching of the church up until Vatican II, which is about 1960 to 62 or 63, somewhere in there. And it still varies from parish to parish. You might go to one Roman Catholic uh, parish, and you'll notice the people are getting both the body and the blood. You'll go to another Roman Catholic parish, and they're following the old practice of they only receive the body of Christ, and who drinks the wine or the blood of Christ, if you know the system? The priest does. So it's my understanding that they dipped the host into the chalice and then gave it to the... Intinction, yeah. They, would, they, would, they had the chalice yeah. and they would dip the host right. in there. That's called intinction, yeah. yeah I, I, that, we don't have any problem with that. Some of our people use intinction here too. That's not my point. But uh, the official teaching was not to give the blood of Christ to the people. But Vatican II said, you can, you can give the blood of Christ to people if you want. But what I'm trying to say is, it all depends on the priest. You might go to one parish and they both get, they get the body and the blood. Another place, they only get the body. Uh, and how this came about, and I'll be overly simplistic, but as all my overly simplistic illustrations have a kernel of truth to them, what happened is during the Middle Ages, you have to picture the Middle Ages, you know, and remember, it's, the Middle Ages were the Dark ages, right? Ignorance, illiteracy, all that stuff. And so you'd have people coming to uh, to mass on a on a Sunday morning, and the farmer just came in from the field, and you know what he has all over his boots, you know. And the butcher maybe did some early morning work, and he's got blood all over his apron. None of these people have had a bath or a shower for six or seven months, you know. It's the summertime. You you kind of get the flavor and the smell and the looks and everything. I'm doing this on purpose. And then what happened is the church said, "My goodness, we can't give the blood of Christ." To that, I mean, what if they spill it? You know, 
And so I'm being silly to make my point. So they started withholding the blood of Christ from the people. And then, so, and then they justified it by saying, well, you know, besides that, in every body, what do you have? Blood. So in a way, they're getting it. Now, I'm being overly silly and simple to make my point, but that's essentially what happened. And it was Martin Luther in the Reformation who restored the blood of Christ back to the people. So again, in the Roman Catholic Church today, it'll be a mixed bag. Might go one parish, you get body and blood. Another place you might go, and they only get the body. So I'm just bringing this to your attention. Okay, what else? Would you put a two where it says, not a door? Not a door in the adoration of the host. Now again, this varies from parish to parish. But essentially, when the priest will often hold up the body of Christ, like this, and sometimes people will genuflect, or make the sign of the cross or something. And historically, Rome has had a long history of worshiping or adoring the wafer, you know, because it's the body of Christ. And we believe it's the body of Christ too. The only difference is Jesus didn't say worship it or adore it. If he did, we'd do that in the Lutheran church. He didn't say worship it or adore it. What did he say? Take, eat. Okay, and then, so this got carried uh, really uh, during the Middle Ages way out of control. For example, anybody hear of a Corpus Christi festival? They don't have those so much. They used to be big in the Middle Ages, and some in South America countries you still have. Corpus would be Latin for body, body, Christi, Christ, body of Christ. And what they would do is they would have the Lord's Supper, or the priest would say the words, but instead of giving it to the people, they'd put the body of Christ in a little metal tabernacle, on a little pillow, okay, and then put it on a, uh, what do they call these things? On a, uh, it's not a stretcher. What's the big fancy word? I can't think of it anyway. Anyway, they'd have a big uh, church parade through, uh, through the town because of a harvest festival or something, and the priests are all dressed up, and they have the incense and everything, and when the body of Christ would come by, people would genuflect and, you know, and worship it, and they'd parade it around. So we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to adore it. We're not supposed to worship it. We're supposed to, to eat it. Yes? Um, okay, you know, like, I was thinking about um, um, King David. They yes. created bread. Yes. Yes. Uh, was that was that part of uh, a symbol of what was come later? That's a good question. To the best of my knowledge, Steve, there is no direct parallel of the consecrated bread that was in the temple. Okay. Um, uh, 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 during the time uh, of David. As a matter of fact, the bread that was out there was not for the people. You know who it was for? It's for God. Yeah. So while I understand we, you see a little bit of a, hmm, that's kind of interesting. To the best of my knowledge, there's no connection whatsoever with the presence of the bread in the temple and the Lord's Supper. Okay, then finally, number three. So we put a three by not reenact. Not reenact my sacrifice on Calvary in an unbloody manner for the sins of the living and the dead is in the mass. What? <laughs> well, here's the teaching. It was in the Middle Ages. Uh, I just, to make sure I was still on my, uh, my right information, I checked out the, uh, in my 1994 uh, Roman Catholic Catechism to make sure I was saying the right thing. It, it's, this is still, um, you can still find this in Roman Catholic Church. What does this mean? This third point is the belief that when the priest says the words of institution over the bread and wine. Now listen carefully, I say this. Jesus is sacrificed on the cross all over again in an unbloody manner, which means you can't see any what? You can't see any blood on the altar or anything. 
for the sins of the world. Now, the reason this is uh, important is because uh, the Bible says, we're not going to look it up, that's the Hebrews 10 passage, that Jesus has made one sacrifice for the sins of the world, not many sacrifices on the altar as the priest does that, okay? And number two, the Lord's Supper properly understood is not a sacrifice. A sacrifice would be offering something to God to get something, right? Which is what makes this teaching bad. No, the Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice. It's a sacrament. We're not offering something to God to get something. He's offering something to us, His body and blood. So what happens in the Lord's Supper is not that Jesus has sacrificed all over again for the sins of the world. No, what is happening is His one sacrifice that He did 2,000 years ago, the benefits of that sacrifice are being distributed in the Supper via His body and blood. So those are just some points historically and even to one degree or another today that uh, still separate us a little bit from Rome. But on the real presence... Rome has the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus, and we agree in the body and blood of Jesus. Okay, number seven. As said before, the Lord's Supper is a miracle. It's a mystery, but it's more than that. It's a miracle of love. What are, and you might want to highlight, the blessings. Why does he give us his body and blood? I think you probably all know this by now, but we're going to read it anyway. (laughs) Luke 22 and Matthew 26 kind of put them together there. This is my body, which is given for you, what? For the forgiveness of sins. This is the whole reason I think somebody, no, Steve or somebody over here, said about going frequently to the Lord's Supper. This, and we'll get back to this point. The forgiveness of sins. Remember, here's, I took it off. Let's do it over here. Here's the cross, right? And here we are in 2006. Here's where our sins were paid for. How do we get that forgiveness? And we've said three ways. The Word, baptism, and now tonight, the Lord's Supper. So, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus gives us, in a mysterious way, His very body and blood, which earned forgiveness for us on the cross. He gives us that very same body and blood, which earned the forgiveness in His Supper, so now we can receive the forgiveness that He won for us. Yes? That's right. We're going to get to that. Uh, But let me just say the safe part so far, and then I'm going to get to the other part. Yeah, to receive the Lord's Supper, you need to have faith in Jesus, and you need to be baptized, and you need to be properly instructed about the Lord's Supper. And there's there's one other point that I'll bring up later, that you are right. Okay, and then 2 Corinthians 5, which is not a reference to the Lord's Supper, but it does have uh, application. He, of course, is Jesus. Jesus died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so from these passages we learn in the Lord's Supper, Christ deals with the individual, with me. He tells me my sins are all forgiven and gives me as the strongest possible proof of my forgiveness the very body and blood which he earned for my forgiveness. Now let's pause right there, then I'll come back to the other part. So when I preach or teach like this and tell you God loves you, I'm kind of speaking to all of you, right? And figuratively speaking, you have to take my words that I'm telling you, God loves you and forgives you. And figuratively speaking, you have to jump up and take that word and say, yeah, that's for me, because I'm speaking to what? All of you, right? The Lord's Supper, though, is one-on-one, isn't it? 
Okay, like in our church, the elders, sometimes they're called deacons in some churches, the elders assist the vicar and me in the distribution of the body and blood of Christ. And so the elders will come by and say, take, eat, this is the body of Christ for you. Well, look how personal and individual that is. And then the vicar and I come by with the wine, the blood of Christ. Take, drink, this is the blood of Christ, which has canceled your debt to God. Now given in his supper that you may receive forgiveness and peace and life. Look how personal that is. Right? As you not only hear the words, but now you're receiving also with your mouth. So it's one-on-one. That's why this is such an intimate communion with Christ. Just like in baptism, we're united to Christ in His death and resurrection, Romans chapter 6. Well, in the Lord's Supper, again, in a mysterious way, we're united to the body and blood of Christ as He comes to us in His Supper that way. So at the top of the page, then, we do this because it strengthens my faith in Him as my precious Savior and gives me renewed incentive and power to live my life for Him and for all of my fellow man. Now, is there any... Let me pause here. Any question about uh, uh, question 5, 6, or 7? And I'm going to get to Clarence's question in just a minute here. But any question about 5, 6, or 7, please. So you said something about the frequency... Which I'm going to get to yet. If you'll hold off, I'm going to get to the frequency. That's okay. I don't want to cut you off, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to get to the frequency. Yes? By consuming the, the, the Lord's Supper, you, I mean, you also, you, you're receiving it, but you're consuming it. Uh-huh. Yes. In a way that we don't comprehend. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Because who lives in us? Christ. Which we talked about again with the, with, with the church again. This, even that's a mystery, isn't it? The same Jesus that walked around and was crucified on the cross lives in you? Isn't that a mystery? Do you understand that? No, I don't understand that. What do you mean he lives within me? You know. So, yeah, th- these are just mysteries. But it's very... Com- here's the comforting part, and then I'll get Clarence's question. Even though I don't fully comprehend it, here's the point. The very same Jesus who walked this earth, the very same Jesus who loved me to die for me, that Jesus Christ comes to me intimately in word and sacraments, and lives in me. Yes, Clarence. When, when something happens, like say uh, someone passes away, and okay. somebody says, well, why would God let me do this? Okay. Uh, I, I feel like in my own mind, I have this same problem. I'm trying to reason out and trying to understand God. And now I've almost come to the point that, that I think this is all ridiculous. I will never understand. No, you won't. Yeah. Good, you're getting close to God now. <laughs> I have to just rely on nothing but faith. Jesus once, Jesus once told a man, I'm going to say to you, Clarence, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Because you're right. And I don't know if you know the passage. I'm sure you do. Paul says in Corinthians, we do not walk by sight. We walk by faith. You're absolutely... That's why I tell you so often. Okay? Now, I don't want to pass myself off as a smarty pants. Okay? But because of my training and education, I probably know a little bit more than you <laughs> about the Bible and all this stuff. Okay? Now, what I'm trying to tell you, Clarence, it's supposed to be, if you haven't picked this up yet, it's supposed to be comforting to you when I tell you with all my training with all my education, I don't understand these things any more than you do. And I can't tell you how comforting that is to me when I read brilliant church fathers and brilliant theologians and I read them and they say the same thing to me. It's a matter of faith, not how smart you are. There's going to be lots of smart people going to wake up in the wrong place. Hesitation and going to faith completely. Absolutely. 
That's what it is. You're you're absolutely right. Yes, George. Well, I've had the same problem as Clarence. Okay. If you could be successful, then yeah. you could reason your way to heaven. And which would be a subtle form of work righteousness, wouldn't it? Yeah. Instead of grace. Yeah. No, you're right, Clarence. Praise God. No, you are absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we got a couple of things to, to talk about here yet. The blessings, number eight, are placed in the Lord's Supper by the word, by the promise given for you, shed for you. And they're received only by what? Faith in the word. So the body and blood aren't received by faith. Body and blood are received with the mouth, with the bread and wine. Ah, but the blessings are received by faith. By believing that Christ, my Savior, died for my sins. What should I therefore do before going to Holy Communion? 1 Corinthians 11, 28-29. A man should thoroughly examine himself, and only then should he come to the Lord's Supper. I'm kind of putting that in there. Eat the bread and drink the cup. For he that eats and drinks carelessly, in another translation it would be unworthily, is eating and drinking a judgment on himself for his blind to the presence of the Lord's body. And then 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we'll do it real quick. Examine yourselves to see if you really believe. Test yourselves. Now, in a moment, I'm going to explain closed or closed communion. So just be patient. I'll get to that in just a minute. But it's very important that you understand what Paul's saying, what we believe, and we're not the only ones that believe this. There's others, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, others. This is not just a little bread and wine. It should not be taken flippantly. You need to know what this is all about. As a matter of fact, you can't properly examine yourself unless you've been properly taught the Christian faith. Who is this Jesus? What is this supper? What is this bread and wine? What is this body and blood? What, who is God? What is sin? What's the supper for? You have to know all that stuff. Because for you to come up to the supper, you have to examine your own self. Okay, After you've been properly trained. And let's look what it says so you can see this. From this we learn, I should examine myself whether I'm a believer, a Christian. And it's real simple in a way. Number one, am I sorry for my sins? Do not come to the Lord's Supper. If you're not sorry for your sins, because you will receive it to your judgment, not to your blessing, because the whole purpose of the Lord's Supper is forgiveness. And there can be no forgiveness where there's no sorrow for sin. So that's one of the things we examine ourselves. What are my sins? And some sins may bother us more than other sins, right? And so we confess those. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, that's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about my sins, what I've thought, what I've said, what I've done. And I'm bringing it to the Lord's table. Okay. Number two, do I believe that Christ died for my sins? Do I believe that in the Lord's Supper, He gives me His body and blood for the assurance of the forgiveness of my sins? In other words, it's not enough to feel sorry for your sins. If you don't believe that Jesus died for you and forgives you and gives you His forgiveness in the body and blood, that's, that's lack of faith. That's calling Jesus a liar. So not only do you feel sorry for your sins when you're coming to the Lord's Supper, but you believe that you're approaching this supper with your sin, with all its guilt and shame and burden, and you're coming up here to receive what? The forgiveness for the very things that you feel so bad about. 
forgiveness for your guilt and your shame, all the times that you've let the Lord down, that's what you bring into the table. And that's what you're coming to get is forgiveness. And then number three, do I intend to dedicate my life evermore to Christ and His service? In other words, it's not uncommon um, when you see people go up to the Lord's Supper, which I'll come back to in just a minute, and they go back and sit down in their pew. It's not uncommon. People bow their heads and they say a prayer. And I can't speak for everybody, but at least some of the prayers that would be common for people who sit back down in the pew after receiving the Lord's Supper. Number one, they are thanking Jesus, God, for the forgiveness they have just received in the Supper. Okay? And number two, they're asking Jesus or God for strength now to be renewed in their living for Him after having received forgiveness of sins. Now, there may be other prayers too, but those would be two very uh, common prayers. Okay. Uh, Now, notice it says, because there is a danger of receiving the Lord's Supper to one's harm, the Lutheran Church practices close or closed. You can put a D on it. You may have heard some people make a big deal about the difference between close and closed. I don't make a big deal. I have more things to argue about than a D. Same thing, close, close communion. What does that mean? Permitting only those to receive the sacrament who've been sufficiently instructed are able to examine themselves and confess the same faith, which I'll get back to. For the same reason, the Lord's Supper must be denied to the unforgiving, to people who live an openly unchristian and impenitent, uh, impenitent life. Now, let me explain... Um, about the harm or judgment. You see about there in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, That judgment could be in two ways. If a person comes up to the Lord's Supper without any faith in Jesus at all, and I don't know if that ever happens or not, but it could, they receive the Lord's Supper to their damnation. Now, can they change that by having being brought to faith in Christ? Well, sure. But if they're coming up not believing in Jesus, they're not going to receive the blessing of forgiveness. Because what's the only way way to receive the blessing of forgiveness is by faith. Now, let me put it another way. However, you may have a Christian. A Christian. Let me use an illustration. Put it this way. Let's say a good old Baptist brother or sister in Christ comes to Messiah Lutheran Church. And they don't believe in the real presence. And they're very strong about it. They just think it's symbolism. And they come to Messiah Lutheran Church because they're visiting with family or something. And they see what's in the bulletin, what we say, and they don't care because they think we're wrong. And all they care about is their walk with Jesus. And they come forward to the Lord's Supper. They're going to receive the body and blood of Jesus all right. And even though though they're a believing Christian, they're going to receive that to their harm. Now notice why I said, I didn't say their damnation, did I? Because the difference is, this person does have faith in Jesus. Well, what will be the judgment? Well, we're told, well, I don't know if we have a whole passage here. You can, we saw it earlier. What will happen is they can receive physical symptoms of judgment. Because if you look up the rest of the verse in there, because he's talking to Christians in Corinth. There were Christians at Corinth taking the Lord's, Lord's Supper flippantly. Okay? And some of them got sick. Some of you know this passage. And some of them physically died, even though they were Christians. Now they were saved, okay, but there was a physical 
judgment. Okay? So let's make that clear. So you either come forward, A, for a blessing, forgiveness to the body and blood of Jesus, okay? or B, if there's no faith in Jesus at all, it'll be judgment to damnation unless you repent. Or C, a believing Christian might come up, but if they deny the real presence, they won't receive it as a blessing, but as a judgment. Let me explain why. Let me explain why. Doesn't matter if you have faith in Jesus and you come to the supper, say, this is my body and just go along with me here. And this is my blood. And the person inside saying, no, I don't believe that. That's calling Jesus a what? That ain't faith, is it? Okay, so it's very serious. And a lot of people don't know this because in many Protestant churches, bread and wine just kind of, you know, it's not very sacred. They don't really watch who they give it to, whether the person's instructed or not, kind of just gives it to everybody. That's not good. Uh, let's go over here first and over here. I just wanted to share an experience. Yeah. A few years ago, uh, I went to Spokane, and my sister uh, is Missouri Senate. Okay. And I uh, went to, the, uh, to her church, and uh, I asked her, well, would it be okay for me to accept mm-hmm. she, said, she said, well, let's ask the pastor. Uh-huh. And he asked me, he says, well, are you Missouri Senate? Mm-hmm. I says, well, no, I'm ELCA. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to deny you. Okay. And at first I was really upset. Yeah, I can understand that. But then I began to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and he has that right. What we call that is every pastor has what we call a pastoral discretion. In other words, even though we have this rule, when a pastor knows there's extenuating circumstances based within the biblical parameters, he can make, he has a little bit of flex room. And so every pastor has to make those kind of judgment calls because he's responsible. Kind of getting back to your point or somebody over here about who, who's authorized to do this? And it's the pastor. But was that right? Yes, that was right. He had the right to do that. Well, yeah. For the ones that do, yeah. are, are you able to go up, I mean, in a Lutheran service and, and take communion? Uh, I, I, no, you miss, miss me there. For Say the ones who do believe that it is um, the body and blood. Well, number one, uh, uh, number one generally speaking, they wouldn't. That's, that would be very rare. If, but it can happen. I have met people that, because they're taught explicitly that it's not. No, I'm saying if you came from... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. If you came from one of the... Like a Baptist sorry, church? Protestant, no, oh. um, Catholic oh. or Greek or... Okay. Oh, oh, yes. If you would... Yes. Or is that pastoral? No, that, that's pastoral. But there is a pecking order here. There is a pecking order here. For example, and I haven't got to my last point, which, which I'll springboard off yours because there's one point yet we've not discussed. Yeah. But yeah, it's more important. Uh, let's put it this way. Without saying the fourth point I'm going to say, I could much easier give the Lord's Supper to a Roman Catholic or a Greek Orthodox who believes in the real presence than I could to a Baptist who denies it. That part's true. But there's going to be a fourth component where that should not be the norm, which I'm going to get to in just a minute, which means we should all believe the same doctrine, okay? which I'm going to get to here. But you're right. There's, let, me, let me show you the pecking order. I hate to say it that way, but the pecking order, okay, Faith in Jesus, baptized. Belief in the real presence, believe the same doctrine of the church that you're communing at. That's, I haven't got there yet. That's where we're going though. Okay? Okay, so let me do this real quickly uh, and then I'll get to nine. Let me explain closed communion. We just explained that. 
on, the only people who normally, there is pastoral discretion, ex- exceptions, who should uh, commune in a certain place are just what I said, faith in Jesus, baptize, believe in the real presence, and believe the same thing. That's called closed communion. Uh, so, for example, technically speaking, uh, a Roman Catholic, a Baptist, whatever, shouldn't commune here unless there's extenuating circumstances, and sometimes there are. So let me give you some points here. You can write this down on the left-hand margin. I'm going to give you about uh, five points here explaining close communion. Number one, write down the word history. This idea of closed communion, that is, of restricting who should come up to the Lord's table, is not an invention of the Lutheran Church. It's not an invention of the Roman Catholic Church, but it goes all the way back to the early church fathers. Again, we can go back, read their literature, and they say, in essence, the same thing I've taught you. Okay? You should only commune in the church uh, that you are in agreement with. For example, um, if I were to commune in the Roman Catholic Church, now listen to what I'm saying, by my very actions... I would be agreeing the Pope is the head of the church. If I commute at the Roman Catholic Church. By my very actions, I would be saying, I believe in purgatory. By my very actions, I'd say, we should pray to Mary. Okay. Because, as you know, actions often speak louder than words, right? Okay. And same thing, if I went to a Baptist church and I took the Lord's Supper, I would be saying, you know, you're right, infants should not be baptized. And you know, you're right, the bread and wine is just bread and wine that symbolize or represent the body and blood of Christ. That's what I'd be saying by the action of taking the Lord's Supper there. Okay? That goes all the way back to the early church. So, history. Now, again, that doesn't make it biblical, but again, I'm trying to put it in what? Context for you. Number two. Today, most Christians, that is the denominations, have the practice of close communion. The entire Roman Catholic official teaching is closed communion. Now, again, just like in any parish, it often varies from what? Priest to priest. Some priests are very liberal. Some priests are very traditional. But the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is to commune in the Roman Catholic Church, you need to be Roman Catholic. It's the same with the Orthodox Church in the East. It's the same with our church, and there are other churches that practice this too. So again, this may not prove that this is biblical, but again puts it in the context that this is not a strange teaching. Most Christians are in churches that practice what I call closed or close communion. So it has a long history, and most Christians today practice this. Uh, By the way, most of the Christians that don't practice this are in two camps, in, in America anyway, in America. Number one, they're liberal churches. Anybody can come. Sometimes even you don't have to have faith in Jesus. Anybody can come. And number two would be what I would call evangelical churches. Now, they'd probably say you have to have faith in Jesus. But they wouldn't have very many. That'd be about it. Okay. That's called open communion. Okay, number three. We practice this to protect people from harm. And that's where you can write down 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29. Now, I want you to see this then as an act of love. If I don't know who's coming up to the table, 
Okay? And I'm giving them the body and blood of Jesus. Obviously, Jesus wants them to receive the body and blood as a blessing. And as Jesus' representative who's distributing the supper, I want people to receive it as a blessing. So I don't want to unwittingly have somebody come up and they receive the body and blood of Jesus for their harm. See? So that's another reason that we practice close communion is to prevent anyone taking the Lord's Supper in the wrong way. Uh, number four, another reason we practice close communion is to testify to the truth of the real presence. In other words, because we know there are denominations, pastors, Christians, who openly criticize the real presence and teach that the bread and wine only represent or symbolize the body and blood of Jesus, we practice close communion to testify to the truth of the real presence. That if you don't believe in the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus, you are not welcome at this altar because it's Jesus who says, this is my body, this is my blood. So it's to testify to the truth of the real presence. Number five, the last one. It's very closely related to four. To testify to the truth of one doctrine that demands unity. In other words, point five is related to four. Point four is just very narrow. It's talking about one doctrine, isn't it? The real presence. Point five is saying wherever you commune, you should be in agreement with wherever you commune. You should be reconciled. Now let me give you two passages. Uh, I've got others, but we'll look up these two for sure. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1.10, which will represent some other passages in the Bible. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, I'm going to come back to that thought next week on Lesson 12, but if you think that God is happy or Jesus is happy with all these denominations, you've got to rethink that. There's only one Christian teaching. Okay? So, either ba- for example, either babies are to be baptized or they're not to be baptized. Either the body and blood of Jesus is with the bread and wine or it is not with the bread and wine. Either the Pope is the head of the church or he isn't the head of the church. Either there is a purgatory or there isn't a purgatory. Either we should pray to Mary or you get my point, right? Not every, now, everybody could be wrong, but not everybody could be right. There's one doctrine or teaching. Okay? And so the point is we are to be one in that doctrine and teaching. Now, let's look up the next one, and then, then I'll make my point. Matthew 5.23 Therefore... If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember, your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be what? Reconcile to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Now, the early church used this Bible passage to say that since that was true of the altar in the temple, it's also true of the altar in the Lord's Supper. How can we go to the Lord's Supper together 
if we have something against somebody who's coming to the Lord's Supper. Now, let me give you an example. The first illustration, most people readily get real quick. Okay. For example, I'll pick on Fred. If Fred, Fred and I have a real nasty fight argument on Friday afternoon, and we're calling each other names, and you know, and it's, I hope I never see you in church again. Well, I do too. I'd, what kind of a pastor are you anyway, or whatever? Unless Fred and I patch things up between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning, probably shouldn't commune, right? Because we're really angry, we're not reconciled, and yet we're going to Lord's Supper for what? Reconciliation. So before Fred and I do that, we need to say, see, Fred, I had a bad day. I am so sorry. You caught me at a bad time. You say, say, we say, yeah, we're sorry. Okay, now we can go to the Lord's Supper together, can't we? Okay, most people get that. Here's the second point most people don't think of. What applies to personal relationships also applies to doctrine. If he doesn't believe in the real presence, and I believe in the real presence, how are we going to go to the Lord's Supper together? We're not reconciled, are we? 1 Corinthians 1.10 said what? Be united of one mind? Or if he believes babies should be baptized, and I think they shouldn't be baptized, how can we go to the Lord's Supper together? Okay. So, in order to, be, to be go to the Lord's Supper, you and I need to agree on all the basic doctrines, the real presence, infant baptism, Jesus, etc., etc., etc. Then we can go. Okay? And that's why, if you've ever been in our, in our church service, and it's a very ancient custom, right before we have the sacrament of the altar in the liturgy, we do what's called sharing of the peace. As the pastor, I say to the congregation, the peace of the Lord be with you. The congregation responds back and also with you. And then I say, we share the peace of the Lord. And people turn around their pews and say, the peace of the Lord be with you and also with you. Peace of the Lord be with you. you know, okay, we do that. Now, what it was in the ancient church, it was a kiss. Now, it wasn't a soap opera kiss. <laughs> it was a kiss on the cheek. And sometimes, you know, they still do this in Europe. You see sometimes grown men, politicians, you know, they kiss each other on the cheek. And it's not for us in, in the West necessarily. But it, it's not a, it's not a uh, sexual kiss. Or no, it's, it's, it was just a way of greeting. And they did that in the Bible. By the way, quick side note, that's what made Judas' betrayal of Jesus so bad. How did he betray him with? A kiss which would have been like a, a sign of a handshake or something, betrayed him with a kiss. So, in other words, what's happened in the West then, rather than the kiss of peace, okay, we have, we've changed it to a, a handshake. But the idea is, is that we're at peace with one another. We don't have anything against one another, so now we can go to the Lord's table. Don't have anything against you personally. Don't have anything against you doctrinally. We're all what? One, as we go to the table. So that's what that's all, that's all about. Okay, now, so, for example, then getting back to your point then, is uh, technically speaking, if I had, for example, somebody that communed, and I said, okay, well, now, what's your intention? Are, are you interested in be looking at the Lutheran church? Oh, no, no, I just like coming here, you know, when I'm here with my mom or dad. I said, well, maybe we have to talk about that, or maybe we won't, because it all depends on what it is. If they're a Baptist, we really have to talk about this. <laughs> if they're a Roman Catholic, well, you know, we'll see. And, and by the way, because of this discretion, some pastors, some pastors may be a little bit different in this gray area here, and we try not to judge. Kind of gray. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. For example, another pastor maybe would have communed on. Yeah, but it wasn't wrong what the pastor did, though. That's what I have to make sure. But see, but those are see those are exceptions to the what, to the rule. And what Americans always want to do is say, "What do you mean? 
I'm an American. How can you do this to me? That's a different attitude. Yeah. So, no, I, I would say that was the pastor's decision. The pastor had every right to do that with his pastoral discretion. Another Missouri Senate pastor might have communed him, or maybe not, whatever. Yes? Yeah, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, uh, in Lesson 12, but if you don't know it, the ELCA is simply more liberal than Missouri Senate. They have women pastors, they uh, have practicing homosexuals and lesbians as pastors, and that's some of the differences. And see, if I, if I were to commune at an ELCA church, I'd say having women pastors and lesbian pastors is just fine. That's what you're saying, but yeah. you mean that. Yeah. That's right, because actions speak louder than words. Now, how I usually do this, let me do it this way, because most people understand this. I, I don't know if you know, I, I'm hoping that most of you understand that Mormons are not Christians. I don't know of any mainline major church that accepts Mormons as Christians in the Christian sense. They don't believe in the triune God. No, they don't believe in the triune God. So that's thing. So most people understand, well, if you went to the Mormon church and you took their communion there, which, by the way, is crackers and water. Which, right, there's a real problem right there because Jesus didn't give crackers and water, did he? <laughs> okay. But if you went to a Mormon church, most people would understand well, if I commune in a Mormon church, I say in the Mormon church is okay. So I'm not going to commune there. Well, then all you have to do is go out a little bit more into the Christian realm, because all these other churches are Christian. I accept them as Christian. But you can see then, well, yeah, if that's true in the Mormon church, then if I commune here or there, I'm agreeing with them. Now, a lot of people are ignorant, and I don't mean that in a condescending way. They just haven't been properly instructed, and they don't know this. And that's why it's a job for me and others to bring this to people's attention. They go, well, yeah, that yeah, that makes sense. Well, I'll be more careful now, or something, whatever. So, okay. Uh, question number uh, nine: Why should I receive the Lord's Supper often? Uh, Luke says, "Do this in memory of me." It says, "Literally, keep on doing this." Well, what does he mean? In the, in the Greek text, it's a it's a present imperative, which means you, unlike baptism, which is once the Lord's Supper is expected to be repeated over and over again. Acts two forty two: They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. See, there's only, one, there's only one Christian church, and what's that? The apostles' teaching. And fellowship, that's worship, and a breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper, and prayer. So what I want you to see, they devoted themselves, and I'm picking on it, the breaking of bread, which is what? The Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, drink of it, all of you. This is the uh, blood of my covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. The point is, my goodness, if I get forgiveness of sins through the Lord's Supper, how often can I do this? I'd like to do this a lot. Matthew 11. It's not a reference to the Lord's Supper, but it does have application. Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's what happens in the Lord's Supper. We come with all of our sins and guilt and shame and burden that we're not what we should be. He says, come to me in the Lord's Supper, and I'll give you rest through the forgiveness of your sin. Um, 1 Corinthians 11. Do this. It's another Greek present imperative. Keep on doing this. For every time you eat the bread, drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. From this we learn, I should receive the Lord's Supper often. Because, why? Because it's the will of my Lord. He wants me to come to his table again and again. And he's time to recall the loving remembrance how he suffered and died for my sins. And B, because of the promised blessings, especially forgiveness of my sins, which includes every other blessing, turn the plague because I'm forever and deeply in need of forgiveness, peace, joy, and strength. 
which become mine through the sacrament. And D, because every time I go to communion, I preach a sermon without words, proclaiming my faith in the Savior who died for me, recommending Him to others. This and I, my fellow believers, the world over, are keep on doing until Christ comes in His glory. How often should I commune? After what we've learned about the sacrament, shouldn't we rather ask how often may I commune? On Calvary, my Savior gave Himself for me, Galatians 2.20. Now in the Holy Supper, He gives Himself to me. Gives himself so assuredly and lovingly. I can't help exclaiming with the bride in the Song of Songs, My beloved is mine, and I am his. Chapter 2, verse 16. Surely I should be eager to commune often, that I may know him ever more intimately as the bridegroom of my soul. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.